Well, good morning, Redeemer. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be continuing our summer series in the Psalms, focusing on the Lord reigns. And this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 99 and thinking about the Lord reigns in holiness. The Lord reigns in holiness. As you're finding Psalm 99 in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles or your devices open this morning as we'll be going back to them again and again. Gravestones attempt to summarize a life. The typical lifespan in the United States is 78.8 years. That's roughly 29,000 days or 690,000 hours or 41 million minutes or 2.5 billion seconds. How do you summarize that life in just a couple of seconds? Well, here are some famous gravestones that attempt to summarize lives. Martin Luther King Jr.'s gravestone says, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Robert Frost says, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. Langston Hughes, O God of dust and rainbows, help us see that without dust, the rainbow would not be. Emily Dickinson's gravestone just says, called back. Frank Sinatra, the best is yet to come. Merv Griffin, I will not be right back after this message. Sir Winston Churchill, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Or from a Maryland cemetery, an anonymous gravestone, here lies an, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny, that's all, folks. How would you summarize God in just a couple of seconds? What would you emphasize if you were summarizing who God is? The Bible is going to emphasize God's holiness. There are lots of literary devices the Bible used for emphasis, but one of them is repetition. And the only adjective that the Bible uses three times in a row to describe God is holy. It's holy, right? And we saw that this morning in Revelation chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 6. We saw the Bible say that God was holy, holy, holy. And the Bible is telling you if you want to understand who God is, you need to begin with holiness. Well, what is holiness? What, what do we mean when we say that God is holy? Certainly, we're talking about his awesome might and his moral perfection and his uprightness. But the Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, has at its heart this idea of being set apart or being separate. And it's telling you that God is distinct. He is completely other. He is wholly other. He's separate from his creation. It's pointing to the creature-creator distinction. Jackie Hill Perry, in her book, Holier Than Thou, talks about this as, as she discusses the three holies. She says, with all three holies, the seraphim are emphasizing the absolute, 
unalterable, essential, and total holiness of God. To say that God is holy, holy, holy is to say that God is most holy. He is totally holy, completely holy, unwaveringly holy, utterly holy. The Lord is holy beyond comparison, for His holiness is not a derivative of some other source. His holiness is intrinsic to His nature as God. Do you remember how Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, hallowed is another word for holy. And so as Jesus is teaching us to pray, he's saying you need to begin with God's holiness. We're going to look at Psalm 99 this morning under three headings. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see His holy reign. And then in verses 4 and 5, we're going to see His holy justice. And then in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see His holy answer. So His holy reign, His holy justice, and His holy answer. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Exalt the holy King, our God, Exalt the Holy King, our God, who answers His people from His throne. Exalt the Holy King, our God, who answers His people from His throne. Let's focus our attention this morning on Psalm 99. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King, in His might, loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning... Would you give us a picture, just the smallest glimpse, a taste of the holiness that Isaiah saw in his vision of you high and lifted up. And I pray that as we see that vision of your holiness, that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all, let's consider together this morning in verses 1 through 3, 
His holy reign. And I want to begin this morning by thinking about the structure of the psalm, because the structure of this psalm is defined by repetition. Did you catch some of the repeated words here in the psalm? Exalted, holy, and our God are all repeated three times. Two times, worship is repeated. And there are three different locations. There's in Zion, verse 2, and at His footstool, verse 5, and at His holy mountain, verse 9. And these repeated terms are combined together to form a refrain, and that refrain defines the psalm. You see it for the first time in verse 5, exalt the Lord our God, worship at His footstool, holy is He. And then it's repeated down there in verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for, and actually holy comes first here, for holy is the Lord God, for holy is the Lord God. And those two refrains define the psalm into two different sections. You have one through five, and then you have six through nine. And that refrain has two commands. And those two commands are the only commands in the psalm. And they're in parallel, so they explain one another. And those two commands are exalt and worship. And worship is tied to a location. In verse 5, we're, so, we're supposed to worship at His footstool. In verse 9, we're supposed to worship at His holy mountain. And those locations evoke images of kingship. The king's throne would have had a footstool because the king's throne would have been high and lifted up, and so he would have had a, a footstool under his feet. And in the Bible, all different kinds of things are called his footstool. The holy mountain is called God's footstool. Zion, the temple, the whole earth, and especially the ark are considered God's footstool. And these terms aren't mutually exclusive. They're used interchangeably. When you understand that, it explains why it says in verse 1 that he sits upon, enthroned upon the cherubim. You see, the ark in its design, right, this, this thing that represented the presence of God uh, to His people in Israel, was designed with two cherubim, these winged creatures, facing each other on the mercy seat. And that ark is described as God's footstool, which is part of the throne. So it makes sense for the psalmist to say that God is enthroned upon the cherubim because He's enthroned upon the ark. But the second command is exalt the Lord. Exalt the Lord. And this has a sense of giving God the place of honor. It's giving Him our allegiance as our King. And why should we exalt Him? Well, the psalm gives two reasons. The first reason is that God is already exalted. Look there in verse 2. For the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. In other words, exalting God is just acknowledging reality. It's stating the truth. It's aligning with the way the world is. Exalting the exalted one is very orienting. 
And we often live disoriented lives because over and over again, aren't we? We're exalting ourselves. We're exalting ourselves. And when we exalt ourselves in a world that is designed to exalt God, it's like driving the wrong way on a one-way street. I went to college in downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I had a number of different jobs along the way. The most short-lived job in my tenure was delivering newspapers, and it was short-lived because it was getting up very early in the morning, and that did not align with the way I like to live my life. Uh, But it was delivering newspapers. Now, if you were born after 1994, (laughs) a newspaper uh, (laughs) is the way a previous generation found out what was happening in the world, right? There was this printed thing that was distributed to all these people. Well, um, Josh Himes and I would show up downtown at the headquarters of the Philadelphia Inquirer at 3.30 in the morning and we'd receive a van that was packed with bundles of newspapers. And we'd go and we'd drive through the city and drop these bundles of newspapers off at various assigned locations. Now, Philadelphia has lots of one-way streets, but from 3.30 to 4.30 in the morning, you could pretty much drive wherever you wanted. But about 4.30 in the morning, traffic would would begin to pick up. And suddenly, driving the wrong way on a one-way street had consequences, right? Because now you were driving into incoming traffic. Well, exalting yourself in a world that's designed to exalt God is like driving the wrong way on a one-way road. You're going against the way the world was created, right? And eventually, you might get away with it for a while, but eventually you're going to be driving into oncoming traffic. You see, the first reason that God gives for us to exalt Him is because that's the way the world is made. God is exalted. And so if you're going to align with that truth, you have to exalt Him instead of exalting yourself. The second reason that God gives is for exalting Him is introduced by the word for. And when you have a hymn, and Psalm 99 is a hymn, when you have a hymn, the reasons for, for praise are introduced by this word for. And it just appears once in our psalm. Did you catch it? It's at the very end of the psalm. It's in verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for holy is the Lord our God. And that's the second reason to exalt him, is that he's holy. And the psalmist actually structures the entire psalm this way. You see, this is echoed in the refrain that's repeated there in verse 5, right? How does verse 5 end? Holy is he. But that phrase, holy is he, was used one other time in the psalm. Did you catch it? It's there at the end of verse 3. Holy is He. And at the end of verse 3, that's a minor refrain that divides the first section into two parts, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 4 and 5. So, holy is He, 
divides the entire psalm into three stanzas. And this three stanza structure emphasizes the thrice holy nature of God. God is holy, holy, holy. In verses 1 through 3, he's holy in his sovereign reign. Verses 4 and 5, he's holy as he establishes justice. Verses 6 through 9, he's holy as he answers his people. In other words, God's holiness is everywhere, affecting everything that he does. You can't separate God's holiness from his forgiveness or from his discipline or from his love. You see, it's a holy love. It's a holy forgiveness. It's a holy discipline. And this idea of not being able to divide God into his different parts is called the doctrine of the simplicity of God. And Jackie Hill Perry in Holier Than Thou, which is our reflection quote this morning, says this, there are times when our conversations around the holiness of God make it seem as if holiness is a part or a piece of God, that God moves in between attributes when deciding how to be, that one day he chooses to be loving, and another day he chooses to be vengeful, that if God were a sweet potato pie, holiness is one slice of it that's set aside from the others. On one plate is holiness, on another plate is love. However, holiness is not an aspect of God. Holy is who he is through and through. His attributes are never at odds with one another, nor do they switch places depending on God's mood. They are him. God is his attributes. That means all that is in God simply is God. When God loves, it's a holy love. When God reveals himself as judge, pouring out his cup on the deserving, he has not ceased to be loving or holy either. In all that he is and all that he does, he is always himself. He's holy, holy, holy. It's been said that Psalm 99 is a liturgy for Isaiah 6. So you want to sing Isaiah's vision? Sing Psalm 99. You want to pray Isaiah's vision of God high and lift it up? Pray Psalm 99. And Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 that we read this morning is God, it starts off in verse 1 with God high and lifted up. He's exalted on his throne. In verse 2, seraphim, these are heavenly creatures, begin to cry out. And we hear in verse 3 that they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the foundations shake and the earth is filled with smoke. And Isaiah responds, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. James Luther Mays says that Isaiah never viewed life in the same way after that. 
He never viewed the world in the same way after he said, my eyes have seen the king. You see, seeing God in his holiness radically changed, radically transformed Isaiah's life. And Isaiah's response, it should be our response. Psalm 99 says it this way. It's there in verse 1. Let the peoples tremble. Let the earth quake. Or perhaps we should respond with the refrain of verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. And repeating that refrain regularly in our life, maybe daily in our life, will reorient our lives. You see, sometimes our problems seem big and God seems small. Sometimes people seem big and God seems small. But just catching a glimpse of God as King filling the temple high and lifted up puts everything in perspective. That's the only thing that can bring deep peace, deep shalom, a whole life peace. And that's a peace that you can have regardless of your circumstances. And Paul calls that peace the peace that passes understanding. Do you remember in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 8, I think to tell us what's reorienting our lives and what's giving us that peace. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, the picture of God in His holiness will reorient our lives. In Jesus' day, in Second Temple worship, Jewish tradition has it that Psalm 99 was sung every Friday at the temple. And that was designed as a weekly reminder to reorient your life around this truth that God is holy. That brings us secondly then in verses 4 and 5, to his holy justice, his holy justice. You've heard the saying, right? Power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's some debate maybe over the greatest villain in literature and movies. If you're a Star Wars fan, you might think it's Darth Vader. If you like Harry Potter, you might think it's Voldemort. If you're a Marvel fan, you might think that it's Thanos, right? But all great villains have one thing in common, that as they grow in power, they grow in corruption. The more powerful they become, the more corrupt they become. Nothing can restrain them, but not so the Lord. Verse 4 literally in the Hebrew is, and the strength of the king loves justice. The strength 
of the king, the power of the king. In, in other words, in his strength, in his power, right, as he reigns, he loves justice. Power doesn't corrupt God. He doesn't become a despot or a tyrant or an oppressor. He's a different kind of king. Why? Because he's holy. His holiness defines him. O. Palmer Robertson says, God has unlimited power. He has unlimited power. He could do whatever he wished, but he never abuses that power as he exercises it among men. He never abuses that power. He always dispenses it with justice. That's a different kind of king. And it goes on in verse 4. The psalmist says, You have established equity, that's uprightness, and you have executed justice and righteousness. You see, this is the way that holiness is manifest in the kingdom of God. It's manifest with equity and justice and righteousness. That's the way it's supposed to be, which is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer for God's kingdom to come, His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the way, oh, brothers and sisters, that's the way that it will be one day when the dawn breaks and the shadows flee away. One day, we will see God's kingdom and His holiness, and it will be manifest fully with equity and justice and righteousness. And the psalmist here shifts his language. To this point, he's been referring to God in the third person, but here in verse 4, he shifts to the second person. You. You have established equity. And in the original language, it's as if the Bible is underlining this twice. There's a double emphasis on you because of its placement. You have established equity. You see, the psalmist goes from talking about God to talking to God. And there's a certain intimacy there. And that intimacy continues in the next verse. Look at verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Our God. This is the sovereign king. He's reigning over the universe, and the psalmist addresses him using a possessive pronoun. He's our God. And this is the beauty and the mystery of the covenant. One commentator says, the holy king, the holy king who reigns over the earth, unites himself to his people and establishes his throne among them. He will be their God and they will be his people. The covenant is seen in God's righteous rule over them and in their worshipful allegiance to him. Obedience is demanded and justice is established. The holy God who reigns is called our God and he's addressed as you. The transcendent has become imminent. The unreachable is now accessible. The holy God of the universe has drawn near. The Creator has entered into relationship with His creature. Through the covenant, this exalted reigning King becomes our God. God with us, Emmanuel. Thirdly, then, we have in verses 6 through 9, his holy answer. 
his holy answer. The first word of verse 6 is unusual in the Psalter. What's the first word there of verse 6? It's Moses. Moses only occurs eight times in the entire Psalter. Why, why this sudden concentration of Moses' references? They all, they all occur. Seven of the eight occur in book four here in verse, Psalms 90 to 106. So Moses is only mentioned eight times, and seven of them occur here in book four. So why this mosaic voice suddenly? Well, the Psalter is put together in a season of post-exilic disappointment, right? There is no king on the throne because there is no throne. Israel's in the land, but they don't possess the land. And so the psalmist cries out at the end of book 3 in Psalm 89. He says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? You see, it seems as though the Davidic promises have failed. And then he says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? And so now the psalmist is taking you back to a time before David. He's taking you back to the time of Moses. And Psalm 99, in particular, is very similar to Exodus chapter 15. And Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses after God delivered his people out of bondage and slavery through the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. And Psalm 99 and Exodus 15 share all sorts of vocabulary. They talk about God's reign, exalted, great, awesome, mighty, holy, people trembling. This is the song that Moses sang about the victory of the exalted warrior king. And Exodus 15 concludes, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And so Psalm 99 is placed here in book 4 as an answer to the cry of Psalm 89 when it seems like the Davidic promises have failed. And you can hear the redactor saying, the holy king still reigns. God is still enthroned on high. He is still our God. He is still a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping king. And even though it feels, even though it feels like he's not answering, even though it feels like the silence is overwhelming, even though it feels like the waiting will never end, God will answer. It is coming. And verses 6 through 8 portray this God who answers. Called and answered are both repeated two times. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron and Samuel called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered him. And the psalmist is saying, we have a God who answers. James Luther Mays says in the idea of kingship, in the ancient Near East, there was this ethic. And the ethic was that the king should respond to the petitions of the helpless. If the king heard their cry, heard the cry of the helpless, the king should respond. But of course, ancient Near Eastern kings didn't live up to this ethic. They failed to answer. But the Lord our God answers again and again, right? 
cry and answer is the rubric of prayer in the Psalms. You have servants appealing to their king. It's cry and answer, cry and response. In verse 7, God speaks, and He speaks out of the cloud. And then in verse 8, there's a shift again in language. We move from addressing God in the third person to the second person. Look at verse 8. O Lord our God, you answered them. And them here is a reference to Moses and Aaron and Samuel. And Moses and Aaron and Samuel are all covenant mediators, and they intercede on behalf of Israel. And these, in particular, interceded in times of corporate guilt. And what is God's answer when they called to him? Well, it's two parts, and it's there in verse 8. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. And I want to argue that these two parts, both forgiving and avenging, flow out of God's holiness. You see, these covenant mediators, they weren't just calling out for help. They're pleading on behalf of the guilty before a holy God. James Luther Mays again says, it is forgiveness. It's forgiveness as an answer for which the Lord is praised. Not just help in time of need. Forgiveness of guilt is a special exercise of the sovereign freedom of God. In other words, God chooses to forgive. And that's His answer. But we can't stop there. You see, as a holy God, God must also deal with sin. He knows, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. And so He must also avenge their wrongdoings. Now, some commentators take avenge their wrongdoings as discipline or chastening, and it certainly has that sense to it. But avenger has the sense of a vengeance or revenge, right? And vengeance and revenge is much harsher than just chastisement or chastening, right? It's actually looking at punishment. In other words, God, being a holy God, must punish sin. He can do no other. His holiness demands it. He must avenge wrongdoing. He must punish it. And that's what Paul is wrestling with in Romans chapter 3 when he's talking about the blood of Jesus being spilt for our propitiation. In verses 25 and 26, he says, okay, so why does Jesus' blood have to be spilt? And he says this, was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, how can God be holy and forgive sin. The wages of sin is death. If God just passes over sin, He's no longer just. The penalty must be paid. In the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund, 
one of the four children, has sided with the white witch and betrayed Aslan. And because he has, he's now the white witch's prisoner. And Aslan sends a team and rescues Edmund, but the white, wiz- the, the white witch shows up at Aslan's camp a little bit later, and she says, you have a traitor there, Aslan. Well, said Aslan, his offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the deep magic? asked the witch. And she goes on to remind him, you know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to a kill. And so, continues the witch, that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Oh, Aslan, Susan whispered, Can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? But the deep magic cannot be undone. And Aslan goes, and he speaks with the white witch alone. And when he returns, he says, I have settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. And everyone erupts in joy. And the white witch, as she's walking away, turns and calls out, how do I know that this promise will be kept? And Aslan just growls. And of course, if you know the story, you know that Aslan's promise was to take Edmund's place. You see, the white witch had renounced her claim on Edmund's blood because she accepted Aslan's blood in his place. The penalty must be paid to satisfy God's holiness. Look at verse 8. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. How does God forgive their sin and avenge their wrongdoing? It's the same way He forgives our sin and avenges our wrongdoing. It's through the Gospel. You see, there was another covenant mediator who is pleading on behalf of the guilty before a holy God. And He stepped in and He took the place of the guilty. He took your place. He took my place. And He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And He cried out. But this time, His cry was met with infinite silence. Other intercessors were answered, but Jesus was forsaken. And this is how a holy God can forgive our sin and avenge our wrongdoing. Jesus paid the penalty for us. Jesus died the death that we deserved. You see, God will always answer you. Because on that Friday, He didn't answer His Son. And that's God's holy answer. That Jesus is our God. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. And that's all the reason we need to exalt the Holy King, our God, who answers His people from His throne. You think about that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who forgives sin and avenges wrongdoing. That in your holiness, you are both just and the justifier of those who put faith in you. Heavenly Father, would you give us a glimpse of your holiness as we depart this place. And like Isaiah, may our lives be radically transformed. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.